The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. So glad to see you all here today. Um, thank you for being here, City Rev Church family. Thank you for joining us live online. Many of you are, are joining us um, from all over and are part of the City Rev Church family. We're so glad that you have joined us, that we can be together even though we're physically apart in some ways, but we are still together as a church. For those of you who are not part of the City Rev Church family, maybe you're visiting or you're a guest today, I'm so glad that you are, are here today. In fact, maybe some of you were invited here today by a friend who attends, or maybe you were uh, sent a link or invited to watch online. Glad that you've joined us today uh, because we are kicking off a series called Faith and Logic. In fact, this is actually uh, Faith and Logic 3. We, every couple years, do a series, have done a series called Faith and Logic, and um, we do this routinely because we want to be a people, not just a people of faith, but God has given us a brain, so we want to use our minds as well, and we fundamentally believe that faith and logic are not mutually exclusive, and so we like to talk through what is the logic behind our faith. So if you are someone that likes to ask real and tough questions about the Bible, what the Bible says, glad that you're here. And you'll fit in because we're like that as well. We want to ask the tough questions. We don't want to ignore them. We want to have those questions. Maybe you're watching online and you say, look, I, I'm kind of a skeptic. I'm not sure what I believe or I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus or the Bible. Um, that's okay. Glad that you're watching um, because that is what the series is exactly designed for. And for some of you, as we go through this series, you might say, you know what? This reminds me of a conversation I just had with a family member or someone I work with or a friend or a neighbor. Um, most of us probably, I know I have people like that in my life that they have honest questions and I love those, those discussions about those questions. I love hearing and learning from those people around me that have tough questions. And so this might be, this is a great series for if you hear something along the way like, oh man, you know, I, th- I know someone who I'd love to hear their thoughts on this. You can go right to the City Rev app if you're part of the church, our church family. Hopefully you have the City Rev app. We have our messages there. And it's really easy to go to one of those messages and just hit share. You can text it or email email it right from your friend, uh, right to your friend from your phone. And I'd recommend just saying something like, hey, I thought this was interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Use it to create a dialogue um, and a great way to create that with the people around you that you love. And so um, I'm excited as we go through this and pushing into both our, stretching both our faith and our logic. So we're going to jump into part one today. Um, I'm going to begin this teaching time with a word of prayer. So would you pray with me? Lord, we just together, um, that prayer that um, we just sung, that we just surrender to you. We make ourselves available to you. And Lord, I I just acknowledge that there's people that are on all ends of that spectrum. There may be people that are just here because someone invited them, but they feel way far from you. They may not even believe in you. So Lord, I, I just, I pray that you would show yourself to them. You'd speak to them. You'd speak to all of us, Lord. We, we all need you. We all have questions. I pray this strengthens each one of us. Lord, that you would strengthen our faith as we are using our minds. You created our minds. So I pray that you would use that. Lord, for the person that's here that just, 
who's going through a difficult time just needs to be encouraged, needs to be reminded of your power and your presence in our lives, that you care. I pray that that person would hear that today, be reminded of your character. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget the first time I had the chance to go to New York City. I was, uh, I, I was married. I was an adult. Rebecca and I had gotten married a few years earlier. And I had never been to New York City uh, because uh, growing up down here in South Florida, that's a long trek. My wife, Rebecca, grew up in Washington, D.C., which is just a couple hours away. And so she had been a couple times. And we had the opportunity after we had got married to go to New York. And, and she was kind of showing me around. And I had uh, a couple things that I really wanted to see in New York. Of course, I wanted to see uh, the Statue of Liberty. There were all kinds of foods that I wanted to try there and places I wanted to eat. And of course, I wanted to see the Empire State Building. And I remember the, the first time I saw it, it was, um, it, it was actually like I wasn't even expecting it. We just like rounded a corner. And um, I've heard people who are from New York, they say, um, you can tell who is a tourist because all of them are all looking up like at all the buildings, whereas all the New Yorkers are just like, you know, shoving around and moving and getting past people. And, and I was one of those people. I'm just like looking around at just all these buildings. I mean, I'd seen big buildings before, but I'd never seen so many big buildings everywhere. And I just kind of wandering like this and I wandered around a corner and there it was. I mean, I'd seen it, uh, pictures of it a million times. I'd seen a thousand little snow globes with the Empire State Building in it. But there it was. And I, I went to the, to the very uh, foot of the Empire State Building. And I remember just kind of like, I wanted to just look straight up. And I'm just like leaning back. I'm like craning my neck. I'm looking straight up at the Empire State Building. And I'm just kind of beholding the building that was, for many years, the, the tallest building in the world for, for many years. And I remember looking up up the Empire State Building, and as I'm looking up to the very, very top, I had a memory that just hit me from way back in my childhood. I'm looking at the top, and I remember something that my sister had said to me when I was a kid. And she must have been about fifth grade at the time. I think I was in, that would have put me in like second grade at the time. And she said to me, she says, hey, um, I've heard, I don't know if you've, you've probably never heard this before. She said, I've heard that it's been scientifically proven that if you throw a penny off the top of the Empire State Building, it will get such velocity on its way down that if it hits someone, it would kill them. And my, my mind was just blown at that, okay? And so for, for many years, I've, I've held that to be true. Anyone heard that before? That if you throw a penny off the Empire State Building, about many of us, okay? If you throw a penny off the Empire State Building, if it hits someone, it, it kills them, okay? And so, I mean, when I hear this, I mean, who am I to question the scientific brilliance of my fifth grade sister, okay? Not to mention, she used the words, it's been scientifically proven. So clearly it must be true. And I held that as a fact uh, for decades. I mean, it was just recently that I read an article about that very thing. And what they said is actually that long-held urban myth is actually not true. And it went on to explain that they've studied how a penny actually falls through the air. And because of its shape, it actually creates so much drag that it hits a maximum velocity of about 25 miles miles an hour. So if you are standing under the Empire State Building and have the unfortunate occurrence of having a penny get thrown off the top and it bounces off your forehead, 
good news, you won't die. It's not going to be a fun experience, okay, but you will not die. And so I was like, okay, I was relieved because I was walking around like a little nervous around tall buildings. But then it went on to explain, however, if you were to drop a ballpoint pen off the Empire State Building, because of its shape, it's like a torpedo, like a missile, and it will continue picking up velocity. And then it just said this, if you got hit with it, it put it like this, it would be certain death, okay? So just as I was feeling relieved being around tall buildings, I immediately got even greater anxiety and panic for watching for fallen pens. Okay, but I just share that illustration with you because I had just heard from my expert, my big sister, that if you get hit by a penny from the Empire State Building, I had heard for so many years that that was scientifically shown to, um, to kill you. And it sounded logical. And so here's what I did. I heard that evidence, that was enough to, con to convince me, I heard that evidence for logic, and then I took a step of faith. See, logic and faith, they actually play together. And I say that because that's actually how we handle all of science. We hear logical evidence, and then we take a step of faith. And I say, wait a minute, no, science is the, the opposite of faith. Well, well, time out. Think of almost anything you know scientifically, medically, or whatever. Like whatever you, you've heard scientifically, you heard some evidence and then you, you took, took a step of faith. You're like, no, 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 look, the things that I believe, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a step of faith. I mean, I saw it on a Netflix documentary. I mean, it's got to be 100% true. They don't just throw anything on Netflix, okay? It's got to be true. No, no, I mean, for me, I, I watched a YouTube video about it, and it's got a million viewers, so it actually has to be true, okay? Like, I, I read something somewhere, I heard it from my friend, and they used the word science and studies, so it actually has to be true. See, most of the time when we hear something, we hear some evidence, and then we take a step of faith, believing those who have laid out that evidence for us. And I'm not saying that to question science. Science is amazing, we should thank God for science. It's exploring his, his creation. We, we shouldn't just toss science out. No, we need science. We love science. Many of you here work in science fields. Actually, many of the fathers and mothers of modern science were godly Christian people who, were, who loved science because they were exploring God's creation. No, we should love science, and, and it's okay to accept what we hear scientifically. What I'm just trying to do is normalize that with our logic, we add faith. Now, some of you will say, well, wait a minute. Maybe the layperson who all they do is watch YouTube videos are taking it on, on faith. But I've actually read the medical journals. I've read the scientific journals. And we have many people of science in our, in our church. We have doctors and people in the medical field, nurses. We've got you know, people that study chemistry and physics. And we've got scientists in our, in our field. We love you guys, grateful for what you're doing. And so some of you may say, no, no, I've actually read the journals. And that's actually great research to read those kind of journals. But let me just push on that for a second. Even if you've read those medical journals, you were not an eyewitness of the experiment. You're still relying that it's an accurate report. You're hearing the evidence and taking a step of faith. That's a great thing to do. I'm not saying that's the bad thing. That's a great thing. I'm just normalizing the fact that all of us, all the time, start with logic and then build with faith.
Now, how does that apply to what we're taking a look at here, what our first concern is as a church? What our first concern is, is the person of Jesus Christ. It's what the Bible says about Jesus. That's what our concern is. And what we see when it comes to Jesus is it's the same dynamic. We look at the evidence and then take a step of faith. Now, some of you might be here and saying, look, I, look, I hear you, but as soon as you mention the Bible, like, I, I'm pretty much out because the Bible's got too many crazy things in it. I, I just, I mean, a guy getting swallowed by a whale, all these miracles, angels and demons, the Red Sea parting, like, there's so much stuff in there, I'm just, I'm just not sure. And so here's what I want to draw your attention to, and here's what we're going to look at today with part one of our Faith and Logic series. You may, have a, you may have a ton of questions about the things that the Bible says, but I just want to draw your attention to what the Bible consistently says is the most important part. Of all the things to wrestle, wrestle with this first. It boils down to this. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? All the Old Testament points towards it. All the New Testament builds on that one fact. In fact, the, the, the writers in the Bible and the early church, this first generation, they basically said, if that's not true, throw the rest of it out. So I just want to draw your attention to one simple question. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Let's take a look at the logic. I want you to open to a book in the Bible called Jude. Open to the book of the Bible called Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible. It's right before Revelation. It's this small little book. It's profound. It's fascinating. There's some interesting stuff in there. Uh, it's one chapter. I want you to look at Jude. We're going to be working through parts of Jude because it's going to speak to those of us who have some skepticism about the claims of the Bible. And we're going to look at just the beginnings. This is kind of an intro. Look at Jude verse 1. That's where we're going. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, um, go there. Jude verse 1. Here's what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's the opening line of the book of Jude. Now, here's how the ancient letters used to work. This is not just true of the letters in the Bible. This is true of letters um, all throughout ancient times. They would start with the signature, which actually makes sense logically. You'd start with, hey, this is who this is letters from. So when he says Jude, that's saying that's who's writing it. He says Jude. He says a couple things about himself. He says Jude, the brother of James. Now, this is not necessarily common. You don't necessarily just start talking about your family members at the beginning of a letter, only if it's significant. If you are just talking about your family, if you're going to pick a family member, you might talk about your father or your lineage for ge geological information. That's not, um, that's, not what he's, that's not what he's doing. He talks about his brother. He's writing to the church. And so he, this person, James, who's his brother, obviously has some significance to the people that he's writing. So who is named James that could be significant 
to that first generation of Christians? Well, there were two different guys named James that were significant enough that that would be worth noting if you were their brother. The first one is a guy named James, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 followers of Jesus. He was in the inner circle of Jesus, um, of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. That guy, John, is his brother. It's very documented that James's brother was named John. From all the evidence, we don't know of any of the other siblings of James, so probably not the brother of Jude. Okay, there's another James that's significant. This is the guy who wrote a book in the New Testament, another letter called James. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem in that first generation, and he was not a follower of Christ, but he very quickly rose to leadership within the church, and that's significant. And we know that this guy named James had several of his siblings are listed, and one of them is named Jude. So very likely, this James that he's talking about is the brother of Jude. Now, you say, why in the world did you explain to me all about Jude's family members? Dude, you just went way down the rabbit hole there. Okay, what's the big deal? Okay, it's a big deal when you understand this guy, James, who's Jude's brother, when you understand who James and Jude both have as a brother. James and Jude are both biological brothers of Jesus. Say, oh, I didn't know Jesus had siblings. Yeah, the New Testament and the gospel writers, they record that Jesus had siblings. Mary and Joseph ended up having more children after Jesus, and they had um, brothers and sisters. Some of them are listed by name. One of them listed by name is Jude. So as we read this book and we study it for the next couple weeks, we are reading someone who knew what Jesus was like when he was a kid. I have a lot of questions for Jude. Man, what was that like? Did Jesus ever get in trouble? Man, what was it like going through school and being Jesus' little brother? Jude, why can't you be more like Jesus? He got all A's, and look at you. I mean, that would have been tough to be Jude, to always follow after Jesus, okay? Like, that must be a challenge. What was that like watching Jesus grow up? What was it like with Mary and Joseph? Okay, one thing you need to know about Jude is he's very delicately informing the audience who he was. They would put this together. This was not a secret. They knew who he was. He was very delicately and humbly letting them know who he was. He did this strategically. First thing you need to know about Jude is he was a, a brother of Jesus. Second thing you need to know about Jude, he was a skeptic. If you are a person that's skeptical, you're going to like Jude because he had all those same questions. In fact, um, I want you to see what it says. I'm going to flip over real quick to John chapter 7, verse 5. And this is not an uncommon thing that the gospel writers said. Look what it says. Just one little verse here talking about Jesus. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is not an uncommon thing that's noted by the gospel writers that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. In fact, some of the other gospel writers record that Jesus' brothers and his mother came to try and find him. This must have been very awkward for them when Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth and they got so mad at him for what he was declaring about himself, insinuating that he was the Messiah, that they, tried to, they ran him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. 
been a little awkward after that for Jude back in Nazareth. Dude, did you hear what your brother said? Jude didn't buy it. Jude was not one of the 12 followers of Jesus. He was a skeptic. In fact, even, let me just take a, 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 just a side trail here for a second. By the way, the fact that the gospel writers record details like that make it distinct from other historical writings. Almost without exception, most historical writings are so deeply biased that historians have to kind of peel through the information because if you are a king and you're a tyrant who doesn't mind killing people if they, if they don't make him look good and you have hired a historian to record about your reign and you happen to be that historian who might get killed at any minute, you are going to write that history in a particular way. And so when you hear things like when they write about the Greeks, like the Spartans, and they talk about, oh, the Spartans, they killed millions of Spartans that day. They overcame an army of millions. The historians are like, yeah, probably not that many, but it was still something that was significant. But then you get to the Gospels, and consistently you see details like this that are not convenient for the now leaders of the church. It shows their flaws. It shows their unbelief. It shows that even though they were prepared over and over and over for who Jesus was, they missed it. It shows that they were skeptics. There's a very raw honesty, and the raw honesty of the New Testament is that Jude, the guy who wrote this book, was a skeptic. But something flipped him. Because he references Jesus Christ. If, as you probably know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. He's referring to Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. As you read through the rest of this book, he says astonishing things about the person of Jesus. That we're all called beloved. That Jesus hold, makes us blameless. We're called that, we, he says astonishing things about Jesus. Jesus, Jude became a believer in who Jesus claimed to be. And not just over time as he reflected back. Something happened in one moment of time that overnight flipped him. Let me read you another um, passage of scripture. This is Acts chapter 1. This takes place weeks, weeks after Jesus' death. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 1 verse 14. All of these... With one accord, it just listed all of the disciples. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Weeks after Jesus died on the cross, Jude's with all of the disciples. And he's in with one accord. He's there. They're worshiping, they're praying, and they're waiting on further instructions from God. So what flipped Jude? I mean, I want you to see how he describes himself. He doesn't describe himself as Jude, the brother of Jesus. He's got too much humility for that. If I was Jude, I'd tell everybody that. I'd be like, hi, this is Jude. You might have heard of my older brother, Jesus, Okay. Yeah, I think you want to listen to my letter. He doesn't do that. He actually does the exact same thing his other brother James does. 
He, he doesn't want to dare even reference the fact that he's related to, to Jesus. He just simply says, Jude, a servant of Jesus. That word servant in the Greek is doulos. That means more than like our word for servant. Our word for servant could be like a butler. No, a doulos is a bond servant. That's someone who surrendered their freedom to serve someone. Jude is saying that about Jesus. He is the doulos, the bond servant. He has surrendered his freedom to Jesus. Now, I don't know about your relationship with your siblings, but that's not how it works with me and my siblings or anyone I know and their siblings, okay? Most people and their siblings, they're like, look, okay, we're adults now. I know embarrassing things about you. You know embarrassing things about me, okay? Let's call it a truce. It's like a cold war. One person starts firing. It's mutually assured destruction, okay? Let's just call it a truce, okay? But I don't know anybody who says, yup, my sibling is the Messiah, and I have surrendered all of my freedom to that person. Yes, my brother or my sister, I give you full control of my life. Just tell me what to do. That in of itself is uncommon. Can we agree on that? Something flipped Jude. And it's the same thing that flipped all of the other followers. It's the same thing that flipped his brother James. It's the same thing that flipped all the other 12 who when Jesus was arrested, they ran for their lives. They hid in total cowardice. They denied that they even knew Jesus. And then something happened. And within weeks, they were standing boldly with all courage before the same council that had just brutally torturously executed Jesus and they stood firm saying do what you want to us we believe Jesus is the Messiah I mean something flipped them in the matter of weeks it's the same thing that flipped this guy named Saul who was a Pharisee that was spending his life going all around finding Christians dragging them and putting them in prison standing back and watching as they were stoned to death. He went from that one day and in one moment he flipped and then gave his life for he himself to be um, people tried to stone him to death people tried to whip him and beat him he gave his life faced all kinds of tortures and pains. One thing flipped them. It's the same thing that flipped hundreds and hundreds of people who were following after Jesus and ultimately started a movement that is around 2,000 years later. What possibly, what mysterious thing happened? They weren't shy about saying what it was. It's not a mystery. They said it. We saw Jesus dead. And then we saw Jesus alive. That changed everything for them. Now you say, okay, I mean, look, I mean, people back in those days, they'd believe anything. You know, um, one, one author, C.S. Lewis, he calls that um, chronological snobbery. Just because we're born... Later, we look down as if they clearly don't have brains. You know, the New Testament, it records their generation, both whether it was a Jewish, Greek, Roman, they thought it was absurd, as absurd as we do. There's nothing culturally that makes that more plausible. They, they thought it was just as crazy. But something flipped the switch and changed everything for them. So here's what I want to just pause on. This is what we're looking at today. 
It all comes down to the resurrection. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again or not? The fact that there's a guy named Jesus, that's not disputed. The fact that he was crucified, historians, you know, they, they accept that. That's not disputed. It comes down to this question. Did he come back to life? That's the question. In fact, that's so central. Here's what the New Testament writers wrote about it. It said, if that is not true, they said, we are above all people to be most pitied because we've built our life on that fact that's what it all comes down to. So if you're a skeptic, start there. So let's, let's take the resurrection. This thing that turned Jude around. What's the, the evidence for it? Let's just walk through it. Let's treat it logically. For starters, was there or was there not an empty tomb? I would propose that let's just start with this. Regardless of what happened to Jesus' body, let's just start here. There at least historically had to be an empty tomb. Had to be an empty tomb. Why do you say that? Well, because as vigorously as the Christian movement was persecuted, again, that's not debated, the Christian movement was vigorously persecuted from the outset for hundreds of years and was persecuted right there by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, right there where Jesus was dead, died and was buried. And so the central claim right from the beginning was that he rose from the dead. That's what flipped the switch. That, is, that was the central claim. So as vigorously as they debated it, as vigorously as they tried to persecute it, it would be a very, very simple thing for them to snuff out the entire Christian movement by just saying, what is wrong with you Christians? We don't have to make this complicated. Here is the tomb. There's, there is his body. He was not risen from the grave. He's right there. He's dead and buried like many other religious leaders. But there is no account. They never did that. They had a problem. They had to come up with other solutions. They had to debate it because obviously they didn't have a body in the tomb. You, you cannot look at this entire Christian movement and look at this, look at a, a culture that is not receptive to the idea of someone resurrecting from, from the dead as much as it would be today and think that if there was a tomb with a body that that wouldn't be immediately the first place they'd go. Obviously there was a problem for those who are skeptical and were combative towards the Christian faith. There is an empty tomb. Okay, that is mostly accepted by many scholars and thinkers. So then why is this tomb empty? All right, well, what are the options? Well, here's one option, and this one option um, is not commonly held through history, but it's one logical option. One option is that the enemies of Jesus stole his body. Maybe the enemy stole his body. The problem is um, there's no motive. Like, what would make them want to steal his body? Like, once they've, you know, taken him outside, they've made him like a curse on a cross, they've tortured him, like, they don't need to steal his body. What's their motive? But even if they did steal his body, again, once you have an empty tomb problem, you can immediately either produce the body or make it very known that you stole the body. And there is no ancient account of any of the enemies of Jesus claiming they did that. So it's kind of problematic logically. Why would they steal his body? No motive. And then they would have had ammunition to combat Christianity. Second option is that the disciples stole the body. Now there's some plausibility to that. Logically, at least, maybe they had motive. They were discouraged. They wanted to keep things going. So maybe they stole the body. Okay. 
if they uh, stole the body. In fact, this was an option that is discussed in the New Testament. In fact, that first generation talked about that factor that they stole the body. Here's the problem. The problem is if they stole the body, then they knew what they were saying was a lie. And every one of those first Christian leaders were tortured and most of them executed, the vast majority of them brutally executed for what they claimed, that they saw Jesus alive. And it wasn't just a few. There were hundreds that made that claim. Jude, the guy we're reading today, Jude, the brother of Jesus, is no exception to that. One account is that he went proclaiming the message of Jesus as far as Persia and was beaten with clubs, his head crushed, and then finished off with an axe. And honestly, based on some of the other accounts of how some of the other disciples and leaders died, uh, that was more merciful than, than what some faced. Like take, for example, Andrew, one of the followers of Christ, the brother of Peter, Andrew was crucified, and unlike Jesus, he wasn't tortured first, so he didn't just last six hours on the cross like Jesus. He lasted on the cross for three days. The better part of those, before he lost his strength, he continued preaching. So if they knew it was a lie, they gained nothing from it. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they've... They postulate and perpetuate conspiracy theories. Why do they do it? They do it so they want millions of people to watch their YouTube videos so they become YouTube famous and make a lot of money. How do you account from a group of people that lost everything and went to their face torture and death, all of them maintaining what they saw? It's just not plausible that they stole his body. It doesn't make sense from pretty much anything else we have ever seen in history. In fact, the famous mathematician and follower of Christ, his name was Blaise Pascal, he put it like this. He said, I tend to believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Because those witnesses that are willing to get their throats cut for what they say they've witnessed are probably telling the truth. Or if they get their throats cut, Maybe it's because someone knows that they have the truth and they're, they're being silenced. It doesn't add up logically that they would steal the body. So there's only one more theory. And this theory is so far-fetched that it really only surfaces in history a couple hundred years ago. Why? Because the ancients, I think, knew that this, I mean, they didn't even consider this as a possibility. This last theory surfaced was uh, what's called the swoon theory. And the idea is that while Jesus was on the cross, um, he was, had faced so much trauma and so much shock and so much exhaustion that he passed out unconscious, which is, is plausible. Um, but then this next part where they take it is, and they took him off having been unconscious, took him off the cross, put him in a tomb, and then he re revived in the tomb and then appeared to the disciples. So maybe they, you know, it, it, it makes sense they wouldn't die for a lie, but so maybe they thought they had seen him having died and rose again, and that was enough to send them on, on their way to their deaths, claiming that they saw him alive. The challenge is, and this is why I think most, you know, historians um, would not have even considered this, is when you know historically what the practice of the Romans were. And I just want to tell you two parts of this. The first is the scourging. 
Because Jesus was beaten and then he was scourged. He was whipped. That is actually a form of execution. This is not whipping with like a, a single whip of leather where they're bringing it across your back and just giving you severe welts on your back. What they would use is it's commonly called a cat of nine tails. It's a short whip with nine strands and embedded in, in each of those strands are either pieces of lead and or pieces of bone. And the purpose of this whip is not to give you welts. The purpose of this whip is to remove the flesh off of your body. So I'm just going to read you one, histo one historian's account, just one sentence. Um, it's pretty graphic, but this is a historian named Eusebius. Ancient historian, he, he probably had seen this or was close enough where he could give a historical account of what this was with the scourging. Here's how he put it from the historian Eusebius. The sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. They scourged Jesus, and at that point, he was, because of the blood loss and the shock, it probably would be a miracle for modern medicine at that point to revive him. He's further beaten, crown of thorns, they beat him with rods, they punch him, and then they place a, a cross on his back, you know, open flesh, no telling how bad. And then he carries that up a mountain, he's exhausted halfway through, obviously, understandably. And so they give his cross to someone else to carry the rest of the way. I mean, he's already a dead man, if that's all they, they had stopped there. But then they lay him on the cross, and the gospel writers account that they drive nails into his, his, his hands and his feet. And about, man, maybe 30, 40 years ago, articles start surfacing about um, or get popularized. Well, how do we know that he's even really nailed? I mean, they also tied people to crosses. Maybe the Gospels are being, you know, maybe it's hyperbole. How do they know that they're even nailed? We don't have any evidence that they were being nailed. Well, you could go today to a museum in Jerusalem, and uh, you could see this artifact. Check this out. I actually saw this when I was in Jerusalem. That is a heel bone uh, from a body that they found a couple decades ago, and it's got a spike partially still there running through the heel bone and archaeologists have, are convinced that this is um, it's you know pretty much accepted now this is an example of a body that had been nailed to a cross and that put any skeptics to rest about did the Romans nail people to the cross um, which is consistently reported I don't know why that should be questioned but it's consistently reported that they did what's interesting is I came across um, uh, 20, uh, 2015 article, it says this. What's funny is it's, it's out of Forbes of all things because they're not really known for their archaeological expertise. But anyway, they reported this 2015. It says, this bone is the only skeletal evidence for crucifixion in the ancient world. And just even the way that they're writing it shows kind of some skepticism. Like, wait a minute, should that bother me? Even though that there's a mountain of accounts of, 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 of um, people being nailed to the cross, and now there's archaeological evidence. Shouldn't that put it to rest? The interesting thing is about four years later in 2019, also from Forbes, another article that said, heel bone from Italy is only second example of crucifixion ever found. 
as they found more evidence. Okay, here's the situation. They, the, the Romans have invented one of the most painful, this is where we get the word excruciating from, from crucifixion, one of the most painful ways to die. They've already whipped him within an inch of his life. Now they nail him to a cross. And in six days, six, excuse me, in six hours, he dies. The Romans that were there crucifying him, this is not their first rodeo. They've crucified hundreds if not thousands of people. And by the way, if they are called to execute someone and they don't successfully do it and the person gets away, they get executed. That's the Roman law for not successfully executing someone you're supposed to execute. So they have vested interest in making sure that their victims are dead and they're good at it. So let's just say, hypothetically, they take this mutilated body down from the cross. Let's just throw out the fact that he was also stabbed with the spear and went through his lungs and from the best medical evidence of what it describes went into his heart. Let's just throw that part out, okay? He's been beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. They take him down. They put him in a dank tomb. They roll a stone in front of it, which is not just a unique thing. You can go to Israel today and see tombs and gigantic stones everywhere. This is a common way they bury people. They put a huge stone in front of it. And let's say, contrary to anything you could think, he's there been whipped in within an inch of his life in shock and exhaustion and blood loss, having been also crucified and suffocated. Let's say he amazingly, in this tomb, without any modern medical attention, happens to resuscitate all by himself. No IVs, nothing. He just resuscitates. And then standing on his heels that have been pierced with, with spikes, he has the strength to roll away a gigantic stone all by himself. And then trudging with all of the grisly violence done to his body to the disciples, appearing more like a zombie than an actual human. He would stand in front of his disciples and say, Look, I'm alive. And then their response would not be, man, it's crazy that you survived that. You, maybe you are the military political leader that we thought that are going to help us overthrow Rome. No, where they, their brains go looking at this walking, basically walking corpse is that surely this is God, the author of life who defeated death. I don't know about you, but that takes way more faith to believe than to believe that all of these skeptics that ran for their life saw something that they claimed. I know this is insane, but, this is, but I'm just telling you what I saw. He was dead, now he's alive, and I believe what he said. He was God in the flesh, here to rescue earth. He's the Messiah and the Savior. See, it all comes down to that question. You just look at the evidence, but it's going to be a step of faith. You know what I told you at the beginning about that penny, you know, throwing off that it's not going to kill you, but a pen that is going to kill you? You know where I got that? Some random article online. I think it was like the Reader's Digest or something like that. They have a nice little website. They had a bunch of interesting facts, and they cited some article that cited some study. I don't know. For all we know, pennies do kill you. <laughs> Who knows? But what we do is we hear a little evidence and then take a step of faith.
That's all that this is about. Jude was a skeptic and became a servant. Because if Jesus rose from, his, from the dead, man, that changes everything. Because for you who are, are skeptics, and you say, look, I, I just think, I don't know how life got here. I don't have all those questions, but I just think it's random. It's, I think when I'm dead, I'm dead, you know? And, and I don't know what all the processes happen that produced humans that can produce more humans and all this life, but I think it's all random. And, and under that worldview, I mean, what that means is that we're all just essentially waiting. We're just waiting for either a comet to hit earth and everything explodes or all of a sudden us to get singed by the sun or like all of a sudden the, the, the Arctic to melt and it's become water world or we're just kind of waiting for all of this to just go down in flames one way or another because it's all meaningless. And if it's all meaningless, then why do we really care about anything? Why do we care about injustice? Why do do we care about making this world a better place? Why do we care about making someone else happy? Why do we care about the poor? I mean, why would you care about it if it's all meaningless and it's all just going to have a comment, comment, just blow it up and knock it out of the sky? There's no meaning. But man, if the resurrection is true, here's what that means. There is a God who saw the brokenness in this world and entered into his own creation because he loved it and he came to save us. He came to die on a cross and that work was to save us and he rose again having victory over evil and over death and he started in motion a movement to try and eradicate evil out of our hearts and out of this world. And there's now meaning and purpose that he's calling you in faith to be a part of. See, with the, with the resurrection, it's a hope. Without the resurrection, what hope do you have that there's going to be a happy ending? All we have is a bunch of wishful thinking, but if there, is, if there is God who came to earth and defeated evil and death, and he says it's just the first fruits of what's to come, there is reason to hope that God is at work in this world, and that's a hope that I want to be a part of. But it's not just hope for our world. It's a hope for you. That means that you have a good God that loves you, cares about you, knows what you're walking through, and has a plan for you that he's working out. That means that for you, if you put your faith in Jesus, death is not the end. You, like Christ, will rise into eternity. This is just the beginning. But it's more than that. It changes everything. That means that not only is death and evil defeated, but all of your sin has been thoroughly paid in full. Past, present, and future. That means that what the gospel writers said is true. Your guilt and shame has been removed. You no longer face a God who's wagging a judgmental finger over you, although he rightfully could. He exhausted all of that judgment and wrath on Jesus Christ. So you walk free, and you're declared, as Jude says, beloved, kept for Jesus the Messiah. I don't know about you, but that's a hope I give my life wanting to be true.
Christian, that's a hope that you can have sure footing on. And be reminded if that's true, there's nothing to hold back. You're a doulos of Jesus Christ, a bondservant. You've surrendered everything to him because he saved you. Maybe some of you, maybe you're watching and you're ready to take that step of faith. Maybe you're here and you're like, look, I'm ready to take that step. I don't have all the answers. I don't have, I still have many questions, but I'm ready to just take a step of faith. You know, it's not, it's not foolish to take a step of faith before you have all the answers. It is foolish to think you could have all the answers. Hear the evidence and take a step of faith. Put your hope in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And what that means is you're not only saying, I believe that Jesus died and rose from my sins, but I'm making him my Lord. I, I will be his servant. I'll follow after him. He's in charge. Give your life to him. Take that step today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you want to put your faith in Jesus, then just right there in that silent moment, whether you're here in one of these chairs or you're watching at home on your couch or on your phone, your tablet, your computer, just make this a sacred moment where you just go before the Lord and just make this your prayer. Make these words your prayers just silently in this moment. Just surrender to him. Just say this. Say silently to God. Say, God, I choose to believe. I take a step of faith. I pray that you'll answer my other questions. But I want to know that I'm saved. And I believe you did it, Jesus. I surrender to you. I am your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all just take a second um, with me just now? Could everyone just grab your, your cell phone? Would you grab that? If you're watching online, um, just grab your cell phone. I know it's probably right there. Just take it out for just a quick second. Would you take out that cell phone? Here's what I want you to do. When you got your cell phone out, I want you to go to your browser. Just go to your browser. Here's what I want you to do in your browser. I want you to go to cityrev.org slash faith. Could you just type that in? Go there. If that was just your prayer, then here's what I want to ask you to do. When you go there, you'll find it's going to ask you a couple questions. If you would take a moment right now and fill that out and submit it, we're, we're asking for those questions because we're going to send you a Bible. We want to put a Bible in your hands and celebrate with you on this incredible journey. If you're here, you can do that on your, on your phone or you can go out to guest services, a tent in, uh, right outside the parking lot. We'll give you a Bible here. We want to know. We want to celebrate with you this incredible step. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.